You're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Blue Diamond. We're big snackers around the Goop office. You know the drill. Three o'clock rolls around and you find yourself reaching for whatever is lying around and striking distance. Last resort snacking, as it turns out, usually isn't all that satisfying, which is why we decided to give our snack drawers a makeover and stock them with Blue Diamond whole natural almonds. I go for handfuls before meetings, often multiple handfuls if I'm honest, because they're that good. Between the fats and minerals in Blue Diamond's non-pareil supreme almonds, they're significantly healthier than popping candy or chips throughout the day, and they actually tied me over until dinner time. Head over to goop.com for some recipes made with Blue Diamond whole natural almonds. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to the Goop Podcast. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. Today's guest is Jeff Hancock, the founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab and a professor at Stanford University. He is best known for his work on deception and trust, and the ways in which we lie to each other, both on the internet and in real life. His research also focuses on sociopaths and language patterns, which is truly fascinating. Our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, sat down with Jeff to talk about why we all lie, if and when it matters, and whether he thinks trust is declining or perhaps evolving. It's complicated. I think that people's sense of trust is declining, and that's a real problem, mm-hmm. and that could lead to changes in behavior. But right now, our behavior is still one of trusting. Now it's time for Elise and Jeff Hancock. You're going to tell me that I've probably lied today. You have lied today, probably. You know, because I knew I was going to talk to you, <laughs> I've made... I. I even held one back this morning. <laughs> a very friendly coffee lady at the airport at 5 a.m., Wanted to know where I was going. And I almost lied to her. Yeah? Because yeah. you just want to, didn't want to get into the details? I didn't want to get into the details. This is often why I lie, like, a lot of times lies are just about simplifying things. And, you know, if, if the other person finds out, they'd be like, you know, good, I'm glad you lied to me. No big deal, because that made it simpler. Right? Yeah. And then when I was late, mm-hmm. I knew if I, if I didn't become extremely specific yes. that you would call me out for pretending yes. to be on my way. Yes. In fact, I waited to text you until we were literally on our <laughs> on way. On their way, yeah. <laughs> Did you know that that's one of the default messages that came with the iPhone? On my way. On my way. Which makes me sometimes wonder, like, did that, did the fact that that default message was there then cause the on my way phenomenon? Because I don't, I, you know, I just don't remember, but like when we were younger, did we say on my way when we weren't on our way? Because know. you couldn't really say I was on my way because you literally had to be at a landline, right? Right. So, uh, so it's an interesting thing. We've been looking at stuff that I hadn't even we haven't even talked about before, but um, you know, communication technologies now are often suggesting responses to us. So when you wrote me and said, "Hey, Jeff, I'm on my way," I swear to God, uh, my machine said, "Sounds good." You know, I had these options: sounds good, 
all right. You're lying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine automatically <laughs> has a you're lying button on it. Um, but right, so now we're seeing these AI systems sitting between humans, and there's now all new kinds of forms of deception that could take place there because the AI could suggest something that uh, is actually deceptive. The AI might not know. Maybe in the future it will. But I could be like, oh, you know, it would be just be easier if I said this and click the lie. So it actually like this new kind of, uh, we call it AI mediated communication because the AI is like working on our messages. They could actually start creating more lies and triggering more lies, much like, you know, the default you know, on my way maybe started some too. And also g- sort of creating an in- an excuse, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, once these systems start connecting to my calendar and my current location and past things I've said in email, they could actually craft deceptions for us. You know, we see these what we call butler lies, which are things around like, I can't talk now because my phone's dead or I'm on my way, but really you're not. Um, You could imagine systems functioning like butlers or assistants that will lie a little bit for you to help, you know, manage the fact that you're running late or that you forgot an mm-hmm. appointment or a call. So it'll be interesting to see how um, these systems conceptualize, like, is deception by machines okay? And our butler lies, is that is that a white lie? I mean, at what point is it is it problematic? I mean, Clearly, it's not that big of a deal. And someone might say, oh, well, like, emotionally, I'm on my way. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm um, preparing yeah, yeah. psychologically to walk yeah. out the door. But, like, at what point is that wrong? Right. It's a, it's a good question because we just finished a study that's out now um, looking at um, what we call the discovery phases. So it's right after you've both swiped right on, say, Tinder or any of these other systems, but before you've met in person. And what happens there is you text with each other. And so we got uh, a couple hundred people to share with us all these discovery messages. So you and I might be texting to see, like, well, do I really want to, like, go to coffee with her? And then we also got them to identify when they lied. And it turned out there were two main kinds of lies. One is, like, to appear more attractive and, you know, okay, so that's obvious. But the other was these butler lies. So, oh, I can't have coffee tomorrow, or, or, you know, I'm busy, or uh, i got to be out of town all week. And, and what we found was that um, those lies were typically okay because it was easier on both people than saying, I just don't find you attractive enough to meet you, right? Like, tell me that you're busy with work. That's cool, because then I don't have to deal with the fact that you don't think I'm attractive. So those kind of butler lies seem to work well for both parties. When it does go bad is when they're sort of this repeated ignoring. So one of the most painful things for a human is to be excommunicated. In fact, that was the most extreme form of punishment the Catholic Church could do for a long time. You were just literally not allowed to communicate with anybody in in the flock. So we have uh, interviews with young people uh, where they would tell us these stories when butler lies hurt. And usually it was when friends would put them off Mm -hmm. repeatedly. Oh, no, I can't hang out today. Can't hang out today. Oh, I'm busy. I'm busy. So that the person just literally felt shunned. And, And it moves then from protecting everybody's feelings of not feeling wanted in the moment to feeling, um, shunned. And that's a deeply painful uh, experience. Is that more painful than ghosting? 
or are mm. what's what's better in that situation? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, so ghosting can be done for some good reasons, right? So uh, early on, we helped um, dating companies ghost bad guys. Okay, so these are like psychopaths, stalkers. One way is to tell them, look, you're done. Another way is just let them pretend that they're still doing everything and nobody responds to them. They feel bad. They feel like it's not good and they leave. And then there's no damage really to anybody. Ghosting done interpersonally. So like I just ignore you. Um, that's really painful. It's, it's, it's probably the same as a butler line where you're like, look, I know you can't be busy all the time. Right. And you just keep on saying this and it's like insulting. And ghosting is just... Ghosting is probably worse because um, humans are really good at imagining things. Mm -hmm. And when I'm getting nothing from you, I can imagine all kinds of stuff. You hate me. You're angry with me. You've forgotten me. And, and it could be you truly are just busy or you don't know what to say or you're embarrassed. But when there's no communication between people, it can feel really painful because we can imagine all these right. things that are much worse than they might be. We have to finish the story. Of like in our minds, yes, like right. There's no, we can't right. just. There's no way That's to right. leave it. I mean, in a way, it's uh, some people, you know, are always surprised that social media can be so powerful. Either like, you know, really negative, like people can be so mean and cyberbullying and trolling. And on the flip side, you see, you know, uh, people getting married and falling in love, and online dating is now the second most popular way to meet somebody. Why is that? Well, social media is like a thinner sort of channel. I don't get as much as like you and I right now face to face and paradoxically that's I'll, I'll, triggers all this imagination and simulation so if you've ever read a book and then gone to see the movie it's almost always a disappointment because your imagination from those words mm -hmm. is much richer and it fits your ideas better than some director no matter what the, the budget is so I think it's another reason why social media is so powerful is uh, paradoxically because there's less information. So I have a bunch of questions about social and also you mentioned psychopaths. Mm -hmm. So how do you, whether it's online dating, social, email, in person, how do you, how do you know you're dealing with a, a psychopath, sociopath, yeah. pathological liar? Yeah. Yeah. So um, my, uh, my colleague and, and, and dear friend, uh, Mike Woodworth, and I have been studying um, psychopaths in sort of like the modern age. So can you analyze uh, somebody's emails or text messages or Facebook uh, posts to see if they're like one of the dark triads? So like a deep narcissist, a Machiavellian, or a psychopath, which we focus on a lot. And it turns out you can. So psychopaths speak differently than uh, non-psychopaths. And we see this not only in the kind of murderers in, in prison that Mike, uh, you know, deals with, but also students that score, you know, really high on this. So they tend to have a really hard time not uh, expressing negative emotion, like really powerful. They have a hard time holding back swearing. Their language tends to be really complicated and, and we call it disfluent. It means it's difficult to read. And so, you know, when Mike and I um, consult with companies or do workshops with, um, you know, companies or leadership groups, uh, one of the main, you know, things we talk about are these sunshine principles, which is 
get somebody you're worried is a psychopath or like a dark personality uh, to be to be using text because actually with text it's difficult for them to be as manipulative as they are face to face. So in Mike's research, he can get people to do a negotiation task, and when you're negotiating with a psychopath, they're gonna they're gonna win. They're gonna like manipulate you. You will get less money. Okay, etc. Then he does the same task, but he puts everybody, the psychopath and you, into a text-based environment like chat or direct message. And not only does the psychopath um, not manipulate you as much, they perform worse. Mm. And so we don't know what it is, what, what, whether they're able to read people really well or if they're doing things non-verbally. But when you put them into text, they lose some of their manipulation uh, power. Interesting. We think so. <laughs> so what are the implications of that? Mm. Well, this is what we work um, on with, um, you know, especially leadership and, um, you know, a, a board of directors and executives where if you have a psychopath in a high up position, it can cause real damage to a company. So how do you deal with a, a psychopath? And there's no one, uh, you know, way that works every time. But one of them is to use systems like Slack where you say, okay, there's no more, you know, private conversations and everything is going to be in this text-based environment where there's a record. And that's why we call it the sunshine principles. And we kind of conceptualize these bad guys like a vampire, right? And the more sunshine you put on them, ironically, text being the best, the less that they're able to manipulate people, the less they're able to um, create, you know, they create other people in the company. So they'll get some people to be like their patsies. So these are people that they'll use until they're no longer valuable. Uh, they'll get other people to be their um, sort of protectors. And then they also identify people that they know, okay, that person, they don't really like me or whatever, but they, they don't affect me. So bystanders, or they might even be people they don't like. But by forcing everybody to be communicating via text in an open environment, they can't isolate mm. you know, the patsies. They can't isolate the protectors. They can't isolate the enemies. So there's lots of interesting things to be done now around technology and also training people to identify if they're dealing with a psychopath and then how do you manage that person or manage them out. How common is it? Mm. I feel like we're in the age of narcissism and we have obviously been for a little while now, now but people are definitely becoming better at identifying narcissists in their own lives or maybe right. that they had a narcissistic parent. Yeah. Is... Are psychopaths more common than we think? Is there a spectrum? Yeah. How how big of an issue is it? Yeah. Well, estimates of like hardcore real deal psychopaths um, are, are relatively low, so less than a percent. However, if you run a twenty thousand person company, you know you got a chunk of them. Mm-hmm. As you climb up the corporate ladder, there are some attributes of psychopaths that make them, you know, can be really successful. So, for instance, they're their risk profile. They tend to be extremely bold. Well, here in Silicon Valley, boldness is like considered a, a prime trait. So, you know, it's not always the case that you think, well, this person's a psychopath, therefore we have to get rid of them. It could be like, man, this guy is willing to take the risk that we need to do and, you know, we're going to follow his vision and maybe he treats people, you know, poorly to some degree and we're going to just deal with that. So it's not all or nothing, um, and that's where the spectrum comes in. So it's certainly the case there are some people that are psychopaths, and they will destroy lives, anybody that they touch. You know, they can cost companies massive amounts of money, and and you know, you never want that person in your company. 
but there are people that demonstrate some of these traits and and perhaps you know you can find the right role for that person briefer answers not super common in the general population prison population it can get up to like 20 percent mm-hmm. of a prison population uh, and in the corporate world we don't have a great idea but we know they're more common than in the general population because they're attracted to both that power and uh, th- those dynamics but also they have these attributes that can be valuable and so do you think that there's a version or maybe it already exists of what you guys are doing where you can assess email text slack messages and start to understand who people are within corporations psychopath or not but that where you do you think that's going to become the next major <laughs> defining personality? Right. Like how yeah. you communicate is how you are? Yeah. Well, I, you know, in my view and the, the way I, all my research, you know, the way, what we type and and, and what we say to each other uh, is increasingly being recorded, right? And, you know, some fairly near future, everything we say and do will be recorded on some device. And I might own all of that. It might be in my pocket. It might be in a cloud. Maybe my company owns it. But everything we say and do will be recorded. And it's very clear that we can infer many, many things from all of that that data. So um, last year, a really nice study on Instagram, for example, showed that you could identify people that were suffering depression mm. better with an algorithm than having like, you know, an interview with a doctor. So for Mike and I, yeah, what you say in your, uh, in your messaging really matters, both privately um, but also what, you know, a CEO says to a company, what they say on the on, on their website when they're talking to the world and increasingly when you're using Messenger to interact with consumers. So, no, uh, you know, Mike and I have developed tools now to help um, screen venture capitalists, leaders, boards of directors. They all want to make sure that they're screening out these really bad actors, dark personalities, you know, psychopaths, you know, na- nasty narcissists, Machiavellians. And so, right, that's exactly what we do is develop tools that are both like about interviewing and questions, but also analyzing behavior. And can you tell, you know, going back to social media, it can you tell how frequently or how often or how aggressively people are lying? Well, the thing now is that social media is part of almost all aspects of human life. And lying is driven more by what we're trying to do in life than what medium we're using. So there's lots of cases where people lie a lot in social media. You're a Russian agent trying to manipulate the U.S. population to become more polarized. Well, that guy's going to be lying basically all the time about not only his identity, his or her identity, but also the messages that they're sharing. You and I are trying to coordinate on finding time to interview on campus. We're using social media type tools, so texting, email, maybe we communicate via Facebook. There's like no reason that either of us would lie. So what we've come to realize is that what people are trying to accomplish is going to be much more important around deception than what the medium is. Mm -hmm. The Russian example is a really good one which I sort of like failed to see. So as a psychologist, I'm really interested in, you know, how do we lie to each other and our friends and our family and maybe within a business? And I hadn't thought about, you know, the idea that a foreign government would, you know, use this technique at scale, sort of weaponize it. And I think what that brings up is with social media, there's really roughly two worlds 
that we communicate with. One is people I know, people I expect to know. So my family, my friends, my coworkers, dates that I'm hoping to meet, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one world, the known world. And then there's the stranger world, which is contacts, information, things that come to me through social media, but from sources that I, I don't know and maybe never expect to know. When it comes to the, the known world, our known network, I think lying works very similar to the way it does face-to-face. We might even lie to each other less because of the records that are left behind, the ability to search and copy and share and check things. When it comes to the stranger network, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it looks like it, there is no limit on the deception you could be exposed to. The reason I'm still optimistic is, you know, we had this with email. Spam was ruining email. You could go back into the 90s and look at, you know, hundreds of articles. Is email dead? Is it ruined because of spam? You know, every other email was some Nigerian prince, you know, Mm going to give you all his money. Well, that's gone. That is no longer a real problem in email. And it was solved in sort of three ways. The first is uh, the regulators realized they could go after the money. So spam was all about money. A lot of misinformation is about money. So once they went after the banks and took down, you know, bank options for these guys, that helped battle it. The other is the big tech companies took responsibility. And even today, there are billions and billions of spam messages that never get to us. Mm -hmm. They're blocked before they get to us. I think that's really crucial is that the tech companies took responsibility and just dealt with it. And the third is we got better as consumers. We know how email works. We know how many of these technologies work. And, you know, I see spam and it's no longer like, oh, God, what is this? I just delete it. So with social media, it's going to be the same thing. We're kind of like early 90s email or mid-90s email where the tech companies are just now realizing they're responsible, but they haven't figured it out how to solve it. Uh, We're in the process of being educated. I think the... 2016 election was a huge wake-up call for society, at least in the U.S. And um, unfortunately, when you have like people like the Russians manipulating us, it's not about money. Um, but a lot of the, almost all social media revenue comes from advertising. So outside of hostile foreign governments, a lot of the fake news, misinformation, unfortunately, it's driven by money. So once those three things kind of like are implemented, I'm optimistic that this problem is handled. Yeah. I have a lot of other colleagues here, journalists especially, that are like, "Uh uh-uh, this is like bigger than that. So I could be wrong. I think it's bigger, but I also think that you're right. I mean, I feel like that alone, I think like you, I don't, not many of us had the imagination to think that we were being... Right. Trolled. Yeah. I mean, by yeah. Russia. Right. I mean, it's so brilliant at yeah. how simple it was. Exactly. Um, and obviously, it wasn't, it happened all over the world. Right. So, do you think lying is, you know, you're Canadian. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it's similar, like it's an internationally that there are similarities, culturally there are similarities, or do you feel like there are certain things that are specifically American, Canadian? Yeah. Uh, good question. And so, uh, I just spent a year in, in France uh, on sabbatical and you know the French were able to resist some of the media manipulation in their election that um, we failed here in the US to resist. Uh, you know Brexit suffered a lot of manipulation. Italy did as well. 
And so, I, you know, I don't know the answer, but I do know that there's a whole world out there that's trying to manipulate the media. And, you know, this is all the way from, you know, really far right wing, I would argue, has really worked on trying to manipulate the media because of perceived biases in the media. But white, um, white supremacists, for example, mm -hmm. they've become very adept at it. And I think we need, uh, you know, we need to be studying that and understanding that so that journalists uh, and then ultimately consumers of news can be, um, I'm not sure what the right word is, but sort of more impervious to this manipulation. Exactly. Even just like the inherent context of like who is more information, right? Or just like even the verification of profile or right. IP or... Yeah. It feels like it can't be that hard. Right. I mean, right now, anybody can be anybody still on the internet. And that's probably going to be one of the next big changes is, you know verified identities but you know verifying with a driver's license and you know what company will be in charge of that and things there's many questions to be solved there but we see a lot of new kinds of technologies emerging that are more decentralized so blockchain for example so maybe these these kind of identity issues get solved in that way i know it's probably too early to tell but do you feel like things like fake news and the election and that that's shaken sort of the foundations of trust between people? Or do you think it's strengthened it? Or do you think it's irrelevant? It's definitely shaken how people think about trust. So there's lots of evidence from the Edelman sort of trust report that's done every year around the world to this poll that's done with high school students in grade 12 every year. And trust in our fellow Americans, for example, but in the Edelman port also around the world, is declining. Mm. And these are questions like, you know, how much can you trust your fellow citizen? And that's been declining. Mm. But does that mean that trust is declining? So there's an important distinction here that psychologists have seen for a long time. There's what people say and what they think and their attitudes, and then there's what they do. So we're hearing people say, oh, I don't trust people as much. And I certainly don't trust, say, journalists and CEOs and church pastors as much. But then... We can look at behavior, and uh, the sharing economy, for example, is booming around the world. And here's a situation where, you know, a young girl in San Francisco, after going to the bar and having a few drinks, calls an Uber or a Lyft and gets in a car with a stranger and drives home. Mm -hmm. Mass amount of trust. That's something that my parents would have said, never do that. <laughs> uh, but it's actually the right thing to do for everybody. For the young girl, it's much safer than driving home. It's much safer than getting into a car with a stranger she met at the bar, right? So it's complicated. I think that people's sense of trust is declining, and that's a real problem. Mm -hmm. And that could lead to changes in behavior. But right now, our behavior is still one of trusting. Let's take a quick break. We'll get right back to the chat. When I sat down to write my new cookbook, The Clean Plate, the first rule was that everything had to taste really good. The second was that every recipe had to comply with the fundamentals of clean eating. I wanted the recipes to work on days when you're craving a healthy filling lunch or planning a dinner for a friend with a food sensitivity. And because I love to cook and I love to eat, I wanted to have fun with it all. I never want food to feel like a punishment or a chore. 
This cookbook is different for me because in addition to the recipes, I included six Q&As with cutting edge functional doctors and nutrition experts. Each one focuses on their area of expertise from metabolism to heart health. And they all come with a tailored week-long cleanse. I hope you get a chance to try out some of the recipes in the clean plate. You can pre-order it now from your favorite bookseller and it comes out on January 8th, which is right in time for my own annual reset. Skincare, two little words that get a ton of airtime over here at Goop. Our passion runs deep. So deep we created our own line of powerful non-toxic skincare, published a book called Goop Clean Beauty, and just launched a drinkable collagen powder. So yes, we're mindful about what we put on our bodies, but we're equally tuned into what we're feeding them. And for better or worse, what I eat inevitably seems to show up on my skin, which is where delicious superfoods like blue diamonds, whole natural almonds can come in. An easy source of skin-friendly vitamin E, along with minerals and fiber, this is a snack that can help keep skin looking and feeling good. And it doesn't hurt that Blue Diamond's non-pareil supreme almonds are addictively snackable and satisfying. You can blend them right into smoothie bowls. I pack them for midday pick-me-ups when I'm traveling. And in the Goop Test Kitchen, the team uses them when they're cooking, too. Visit goop.com to get the full recipes our editors whipped up with Blue Diamond Whole Natural Almonds. Let's get back to our chat with Jeff Hancock. Going back to the beginning of our conversation, and the, and this is a leap, you can check me, but when I feel like we have become so fast and loose with our conversation, we, the small things, the on my ways, mm-hmm. the butler lies, yeah. as you call them, which inherent, which might not be harmful, but I do think that when we're out of integrity even in really small ways, that erodes trust. And I think we also, I know we were talking about this before we started recording, but we all bullshit Mm. so much now, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And bullshitting really being, I'll let you define it, but this idea that we feel like we should have an opinion about everything and every world event. And so we don't know what we're talking about. I do it too, obviously. Right, right, right. We're winging it as like formed opinion, when in reality, yeah, I might not know what I'm talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, you know, there's been this decline in trust in sort of experts and elites. And one positive thing that came out of the uh, Edelman survey this year was a sort of rebound in trust in experts. Mm. So maybe there's some hope here that you know people are like, well, you know, maybe maybe journalists were doing something good for us, and I shouldn't just trust what my neighbor posted on Facebook about their view of climate change or what have you. So, right. So everybody feels like they can have, you know, because everybody can have opinion, maybe everybody feels like they should, should have one. And we're much less willing to say, I don't know. Most powerful words. Right. Right. I mean, as a, as a professor, I've certainly felt that. I mean, I stand up in front of a group of uh, students and I get asked a really good question. I don't know the answer to when I was a young professor, I would, you know, bullshit would come out of my mouth <laughs> for sure. Cause it's embarrassing. And you know, you don't want to look dumb in front of a bunch of people. Now I say things like, that's a great question. Does anybody else want to answer that? <laughs> you know? um, but so this notion of bullshit, which is essentially saying things without regard to the truth. So it's not this exactly the same as lying. And philosophers um, have gone around and around on whether bullshit is actually different than lying or not. But that's the main thing. When you lie, you're trying to convince somebody of something that you know to not be true. 
when you bullshit, you don't care whether what you're saying is true or not. And so I've written about how, and, and, and others have too, how Donald Trump is kind of a bullshitter. Like he'll often just say stuff and it's not clear whether he knows that it's wrong mm-hmm. or whether he just is like, I'm just going to say this. I have no idea whether it's, whether it's right or not. Um, and so, you know, he's, you know, a really great example of bullshit. And, you know, it becomes more problematic when he's in this role of, of president. Um, and that, you know, is really worrisome. But whether we're bullshitting more now compared to before is essentially impossible to say. We just don't have data on that. But we can look back and, like, the Greeks were worried about this. There's Diogenes and, mm-hmm. you know, some, some of you may know the story, but he walked around with a lantern. The idea is he was looking for a single honest man and he dies without ever finding one. It's a really uplifting story. So, you know, 2,500 years ago, the Greeks had the same feeling of like, there's too much bullshit going on here in Greece and like, we got to become more honorable and like, sincerity is really important. And it wasn't just in Western civilization. You also see around the same time, roughly, a couple thousand years ago, Confucius, a lot of his philosophy touched on notions of authenticity and sincerity and a concern that, you know, people aren't sincere enough. So while it feels really, really salient right now, like for everything, fake news, misinformation, anybody can say anything to you feeling right now, this concern is really, really old human concern. And what's the motive? Like, why do people lie? Well, you know, there's as many reasons for people lying as there is to tell the truth, Mm -hmm. to be honest. And, you know, the good news is most of the time, most people tell the truth. And most of the time, we believe what other people say. And that's exactly the right thing to do. So in our, you know, just because it's top of mind, our recent study looking at how often people lie uh, in online dating messages before they meet someone, I think it was 7% of all the messages were tagged by them by the daters as deceptive seven percent seven percent that's pretty good that's pretty good right yeah like when that's dave, kind of shocking exactly. actually dave marquis and i when we first looked at it, we're like that feels good like that's a low amount and even more importantly many of the daters never lied once it was a few what we call a few prolific liars i like that that's very kind yeah so there were a few people that lied they accounted for like 70 percent of all the lies so most people in our sample never lied in their online dating messages and some lied a lot. And maybe those people even weren't like awful people. Maybe they truly were like in a position where they didn't feel comfortable meeting someone like a young woman, maybe not feeling comfortable uh, meeting that guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And so she lied as a form of security, for example. There were clearly other ones where it was like, you know, guys pumping themselves up to like be more attractive. Um but, it, you know, and we see this again and again and again in that sort of known network world. People don't lie that much, even in social media, when it's with people they know or expect to know. Lots of good reasons for that. If you're viewed by your social network, you're, the group of people you care about as a liar, things are not going to go well for you, mm-hmm. right? Like people will stop trusting you. People will stop you know, talking to you as much. They won't share secrets with you. can really undermine your, you know, psychological health. Whereas if you trust people all the time on the flip side, you know, it's the right thing to do. Almost all the time you're being told the truth. And our default is to trust each other. So, you know, I'm, 
I am Canadian, but I'm, you know, and so that might account for it, but I'm an optimist. I, I really do believe that people are most of the time really honest. What about the line between, and I don't know if you'd call it deception, but but maybe editing and, and just thinking about social, and I know it's, it's obviously yeah. a big conversation, and I'm sure you've looked at it, but this idea, particularly within the world of lifestyle, uh-huh. Um, although it's wider than that, but this like a very edited view of your life right. that's very perfect. Yes. Is that bad? Right. Does it matter? Yeah. And we get asked this all the time. You know, we study social media, we study deception. So the question is like, if I put up all the great photos from my vacation in Italy or something, um, am I being deceptive? Because like my life's, my life's not all about beautiful time and beaches yeah. in Italy. And, um, I think... It depends a little bit, but everybody's default sort of seems to be like, yeah, that's all deceptive. Like, we're all just putting up the best stuff on Facebook. But then I think back to, like, you know, our conversation before we even started. We didn't talk about, like, all the crappy, mundane stuff in our lives. Like, I didn't tell you about how, you know, the shuttle here took a really long time because it's boring. Also, I don't know you super well, so I'm not going to share, like, negative stuff with you. So am I being deceptive in our conversation because I only talked about, like, the good things about, say, my trip to Italy? Well, I don't think so, and and I'm guessing you wouldn't either. So, you know, I encourage people to, like, listen to a conversation on a bus between two people. You know, most of the stuff is really boring and mundane, and there's a good reason why they don't share that kind of stuff on Facebook because it's boring and mundane. So, of course, we want to share the, like, positive things, the interesting things that happen to us. And I personally don't see it as deceptive. I see it as presenting to the world what I what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I'm dressed like a professor. I've got, like, a nice shirt on. And I'm dressed in a way where if I was in front of students, they would say, okay, that's a professor. This is not what I wear to my hockey games at the locker room with my beer league guys. Right? I'm sure you don't smell like this. And either. I, uh, it smells much worse. <laughs> it smells much worse. But there I, I'm presenting it a different way and I don't talk like this even. Right. So then am I being deceptive because here I'm speaking, you know, in this proper way and I'm wearing professory type clothes. No, uh, that's what I am. And when I'm in the hockey locker room and I'm, you know, being maybe more crude and, talking, you know, about different kind of things. That's not deceptive either. I'm in the hockey locker room. So to me, social media is just another context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that makes sense. I feel like it's one of those things that we are sort of hyper-tuned to yes. culturally. Yes. And it's That's, very new. Yeah. Right? Like presenting photos of ourselves all the time. It's really, really, really new. It's But it's in some ways the same. You know, my dad used to put together like slideshows to music from his right. travels, and right. we would gather in the living room and watch them. It doesn't seem that different. Yeah. You just get to watch them on your own time. Exactly. Pictures of family members on the wall. Yeah. Here's a picture of my daughter. She's I mean, pretty cute. Yeah, that's a beautiful picture. She's not always that beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, so do we walk down our friends' hallways and be like, man, you're so deceptive. Your family is not this good looking. <laughs> like, no, because we expect, like, put the nice photos up because we're, you know, we want to memorialize the those people and and I, yeah it's frustrating to me when people are like oh yeah you know social media is just a bunch of like positive things no one's honest online I, I mean I just fundamentally disagree with that yeah and I think that you see a lot of vulnerability and a lot of authenticity on social as well and a lot of shared community and right. 
that shouldn't be discounted just because someone takes really good food photographs. Right. In fact, I haven't seen this documented myself, but a colleague of mine told me that uh, some interviews with Chinese users, they were they would be insulted if somebody posted something that didn't have the f- image filtered. It would be considered like, what, I'm not a good enough friend for you to like make me look good? That you've got a face to and everyone? Yeah. So like there was a new norm emerging where it's like, you know, not cool to not filter. Right. That's interesting. Face yeah. tuning is a little different. Yes, it is. That's another level. That's another level. And there's all kinds of scary, you know, truly scary, deceptive things coming over the horizon. So related to our AI conversation. So changing video so that it looks like somebody said something that they didn't or that they did something. They didn't. And this it was work being done here at Stanford where you can modify video to look like somebody did something that they actually didn't. And this is going to become, you know, increasingly uh, an increasingly common tool. And we'll have to figure out ways to to fight back against that. But no, it's, yeah, it's not to say that everything's, you know, roses. I believe that, um, you know, as humans, there's lots of bad things we do. And these are a set of tools that can be used for that. Like, you know, one of the big concerns that parents uh, talk to me about is, is bullying. And yeah. Social media has given bullies just incredible new tools that um, allow them to do things and cause harm that they haven't before. Thankfully, I think this is one area that the big media companies have taken responsibility on, and everybody's working hard to fight back against bullying. But there's no question that um, being a young person today, the potential of being bullied and the damage that can be done is worse than probably when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, you had to be in the same room with the person to really bully them. Now, bullying can take place in many, many different ways. But I agree with you. It seems like for a lot of these tech-generated problems, there will be tech-generated solutions. And social solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Like where it's like a mom, you know, moms and dads are like, look, son, that is not okay to do. That's against our family's values, and you know you're going to get punished for that. And educators and the person being bullied, like there's going to be technical solutions to it, but I, you know, probably the biggest solutions will be social. The example I always give is uh, when my wife and I first went to a Broadway show. It's like 2000, and we go in, and there's like announcement after announcement about turn your phone off. There were big signs like if you if it rings during this broad uh, during this show, you'll be fined five hundred dollars, and it's real. There there was really a law of that, and uh, and now we go to a show, and there might be like one thing like hey turn off your phones because everybody knows to turn off their phones. We we solved that problem socially. We didn't mm-hmm. have to build like special domes of silence, you know, to like kill every phone or anything. We came up with a social solution, which is when that phone rang, we all just were like, oh, you're a bad human. And that person's just like, oh my God, oh my God, what have I done? So shame, you know, can be, you know, effective. But but I mean is like social responses to these technological problems. The butler lie, uh, lying about not being available, is a social response to the fact that we've created technologies that make it so now that you have my number, you can call me, get in touch with me, literally anytime, anywhere, 24-7. And so as much as I like you, there will be times when I might not want to talk to you. I can't imagine. I know, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> but I'm, I, would, I might possibly say a butler lie rather than saying, you know what, I just don't want to talk to you. 
Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> I have to ask you about being a, a border agent mm-hmm. in Canada. Yes. So keeping you nasty Americans <laughs> honest coming into Canada. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Why were mm-hmm. you thinking you were going into like in a different trajectory? I was a psychology student. And one of the possibilities, in fact, my friend Mike, who I do the psychopathy work with, uh, he was like, hey, we could become customs officers because in Canada (laughs) in the summertime, tourism goes like through the roof. And so the way that Canada deals with that is they train and deputize uh, undergraduates from across the country to be uh, border agents for the summer, basically. So we were both psychologists. We're like, man, that sounds amazing. And, and sure enough, it was. We started working there. And as a psychologist, it's, it was like an amazing job because you got to see how people reacted in this instance. You, you went through people's, you know, motorhomes, through their boats, through all their gear. Um, and, and actually, it's the first time when we started thinking seriously about deception. So I remember we were being trained and Mike and I asked the question, like, how do we tell if someone's lying to us? And they're like, you can't. And we're like, what? Well, we're young psychologists. And so we said, you know, we'll create a manual for you guys. And they were like, right on, go ahead and do that. And Mike and I spent the summer when we weren't um, doing the border in the library looking all this stuff up. And it turns out, no, it turn, there is no single way to tell if somebody's lying to you. There is no Pinocchio's nose. I love that they were like, that's cool. Yeah, go, go right. <laughs> That's so, I can't yeah. imagine that they, happening. They were, I think US. they were like optimistic and, and I think they were as disappointed as us when we wrote our final report and it was like, you know, here's some things that might happen, like people's dilate, voices go up a little bit and these high stakes lies, but really you can't tell if somebody's lying. That's pretty amazing. So when you're working, at, like everyone should know, border agents are just winging it. Well, they're winging it when <laughs> and they have. Dogs. Well, they t- they have exactly. So we tend to have a lot of other information. So that interview is sort of like one piece. But you know, the car pulls in, you see a driver's license, and something as simple as like, oh, they're coming from Texas. The likelihood that person has a handgun in the vehicle is is much higher, right? Mm. To that kind of very simple kind of contextual information. That's almost how all lies are caught is some other information. We had teams that would do, they were looking for criminal and um, smuggling type stuff. So they would maybe get some intel that some someone was going to be smuggling something. So then they'd be there that day and we're just all waiting for this guy to show up. So yeah, it looks like we caught him in the interview, but in fact we had intel that are coming through. So, you know, there when you go through borders, immigration is number one and, mm-hmm. and that's separate from like, are you smuggling? It's like, do you do you legitimately belong here? And the U.S. is like really taking that seriously now. Uh, and then, yeah, like sometimes people look really nervous, but the thing is everybody looks really nervous when they go through. So after a while, after looking through thousands and thousands of things, you get some idea of like, oh, maybe something suspicious here with this person's story. So now you're developing other tools. Right. So while humans are really bad at detecting deception in general, um, computers can do decent jobs in, in some things. So there's uh, some colleagues have built um, systems to do border uh, interviews and the computer analyzes the voice, the body movement and the words. My research group here, we analyze the words. We develop algorithms to tell if like, is that review written by somebody that actually stayed in that hotel or, or somebody else? So we write uh, algorithms to look at that. So we're always looking at like, what are the cues or the ling- linguistic footprints of a lie for this particular kind of lie? Because like, 
if I were to write a program for a Butler Lies, it would do terribly at trying to find fake reviews. And that fake review program would do terrible at finding online dating lies. And that would do terrible at trying to tell if a president was lying, right? right. So, you know, there's as many ways to lie as there is to tell the truth. Yeah. It's a wild problem. Yeah, it really is. It but really I, is. And I you can see why people worry about it, right? Because yeah. we want to feel like we're being told the truth and we can tell when we're being lied to. Exactly. It's so human. Yes. It's a core it's a core human thing. And it's why when you you know, there was this great survey around the world, seventy seven different cultures. Number one cue that everybody thinks is predictive of lying, like if I can tell if somebody's lying if I look at this. It's the eyes. Mm. And it turns out the eyes are not predictive of lying. So liars can look left, they can look right, they can look right at you. Humans can't use eyes to tell if somebody else is lying, but we all believe that like the eyes are the window to the soul. Sorry, guys. Yeah, sorry. The good news again, though, <laughs> is most of the time people are telling you the truth. Well, let's believe it. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining our conversation with Jeff Hancock today. You can learn more about his work at jeff-hancock.com. Okay, let's get to that AMA. Theofano asks, how did you react to the most difficult period psychologically? How did you overcome it? That's a very good question. I would say that probably my most difficult period psychologically was after my father died for the few years after that and then sort of compounded by the postnatal depression I had when my son was born. And it was tough. I think it's hard when you get very, very down like that. I think one of the most difficult parts is how do you kind of pull yourself up and out of it and it was a long process. I think I went back to therapy. I recommitted to exercise. And I recommitted to, you know, a good diet. I think also I was, you know, going through a couple years of a very extended cheat time, eating a lot of French fries and being pregnant and that kind of thing. And I started to talk to friends, I think, you know, a lot of us tend to be guarded about things when we're having a hard time or not wanting to burden people with our troubles. And I think it's very important to reach out to somebody who really, you know, their their intention is your highest good and to really connect with them. Don't suffer alone. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this episode of the Goop Podcast. If you have a chance, please rate, review, and let us know what you think. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends. For more info, check out goop.com slash the podcast. See you soon.